We started this podcast as a simple commitment between Casper and me. Once a week, we would sit in a room and treat Harry Potter as sacred, even if no one showed up. Now, we have 70,000 listeners we never could have imagined. We also now have Maggie, who makes sure that all of our local groups feel supported. We have Megan, who makes sure that we behave with integrity in the world. We have Chelsea, who produces the women of Harry Potter. And we have Ariana, who makes sure that every episode, every live show, everything we put out into the world is done to the highest possible standard. We make sure that we pay all of them a living wage. We are trying to be the change we want to see in the world. We are trying to only use fair trade merchandise products to give health care to all of our employees and pay time off. We are trying to save in order to plant a tree for every flight that we take. And we cannot be the company that every company should be without your support. With 70,000 listeners and 1,300 supporters on Patreon, that means that 2% of you support us on Patreon, and we are so grateful for your support. But we want to make it 3% of our listeners who support us on Patreon, which would mean 2,100 supporters. For $1 a month, you get an extra few minutes of bloopers. That's $1 a month for the feeling of being in the top 3% of our listeners. That level of success would even make Hermione happy. So join us. Be part of the top 3%. Join Casper and me in that room that gets more and more filled the more of you show up. We are so grateful that you are part of this community. I'd have sat in that room with Casper alone gladly, but I love having you here. Chapter 10, The Rogue Bludger. Since the disastrous episode of the Pixies, Professor Lockhart had not brought live creatures to class. Instead, he read passages from his books to them and sometimes reenacted some of the more dramatic bits. He usually picked Harry to help him with these reconstructions. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. When I was 12 years old, I broke my wrist and my mom took me to the emergency room and they like put it in a splint. And then the following day, we went to the orthopedist for him to put it in a cast. And the orthopedist was asking all of the regular questions so he could know how to set the cast. So I was telling him, oh, it hurts here. It doesn't hurt when I wiggle my fingers, whatever it was. And as he was setting the cast, he started complaining to my mother and I that all he does all day, every day, is listen to people complain. And I remember feeling really, like, betrayed and embarrassed. I was like, you know, I wasn't complaining. I was telling you what hurts so you could do your job. And to this day, my mother will say, like, remember that time that that doctor complained to us about the fact that all he does all day is listen to people complain? And she's incredulous about this medical experience. But I was reminded of that in this chapter because I think that there are a lot of times where we should be complaining about something like when a bludger is trying to kill us and we don't really feel entitled to. And I'll be interested to learn about complaining. It has this negative connotation, but I think that there are times in which you have to complain in order to get your cast set, for example. 
Vanessa, I love that story, particularly because it really brings up the question, what does complaining mean? I don't feel like you were complaining about your pain. You know, you were answering a question that you had been asked to describe your experience. And I think the doctor just used that language wrong. And so I'm interested to see how we can come up with a definition for complaining in this chapter of the rogue bludger. Casper, are you ready to complain that I beat you in the 30-second recap? Listen, the only complaining that's happening is from your fan base of one, as the army of my voters overpowers you and I am carried to victory. Your metaphors are long. (laughs) Casper. I'm totally in the game. On your mark. Get set. Summarize. So the trio are in Lockhart's classroom and he no longer does anything. He just tells stories and makes um, Harry reenact them. And then he tells Harry that he was a seeker and he's happy to help them anytime. And then there's a Quidditch match and they have to beat Slytherin because Slytherin have all the brooms and the money. And so um, Wood is very stressed and um, Harry is being chased by this rogue bludger that wants to knock him off and the uh, twins can't help him. And he catches the thing, snitch, just above Malfoy's head and goes down. But um, Skelly Grow, arm, then in um, Pomfrey and there's someone else who's... Petrified. Oh, I just get so nervous. I just get so nervous. Don't be charming. And he's not nervous. He's dancing, everyone. My hands are like clammy. <laughs> no, they're not. And I'm forgetting names. He's fine. <sighs> you're fine. I need a sandwich. <laughs> That's, you're hungry. That's not the same as being scared. In my tummy, it feels the same. <laughs> All right. You ready to fight? I am. Here we go. 30-second recap. Three, two, one, go. Lockhart is the worst. It's really important that Gryffindor beat Slytherin in uh, the Quidditch match, even though Slytherin has all of the best brooms. So they start the game, and um, Oliver Wood tells Harry that you win or die trying. Harry is about to die trying because the blood, there's a rogue bludger that's constantly trying to kill him. Um, but he catches the snitch, and but he breaks his arm. Lockhart gets rid of all of the bones in his arm. He's up in the hospital wing. Dobby tells him, I was the one who set the rogue bludger on you, and I was trying to keep you from coming to school. And somebody else gets petrified, and Harry's in Wow. Okay, that was good because I didn't even remember Dobby. Holy moly. Yeah. Okay. I forfeit that one. (laughs) You get all my points. (laughs) That's not how this works. So friends, because this is chapter 10, the votes for this week will totalize up and we will find out who wins the bragging rights for the first part of book two, because every 10 chapters we do a little totalizing and we find out who's the winner. So please vote for me. Vote for me. Vote for me. 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 So, Vanessa, where did you see this theme of complaining show up in the text this week? A place where I would like to talk about complaining is so there is a bludger that's on the loose and behaving terribly and not at all the way a bludger is supposed to behave. It is chasing Harry around and seems to have a vendetta against Harry. It's literally like about to knock him off. And every time one of the beaters hits it away, it comes right back at Harry. It's scary. Right. And it's like not following basic laws of physics. And they call a timeout and Gryffindor gets together and they talk about what to do. And Wood decides not to complain to Madam Hooch. And Harry doesn't complain to Wood like, no, 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 I'm about to die. There's a severe lack of complaining here that I find very troubling. Fred or George says very clearly to Oliver, this is your fault. You told Harry win or die trying. But like nobody is willing to lodge a complaint against something that is blatantly unfair. And I feel in some way Madame Hooch is to blame here. She should have seen that bludger going crazy, and they shouldn't even have to complain. So, boo, Madame Hooch, I say. 
Yeah. And often I feel like when we feel like we're complaining, we have to complain about something that we shouldn't even have to complain about, right? Like, I'm paying $20 for this food. It shouldn't come out cold. This person didn't even ask how I am, even though I'm crying. It comes off as complaining, but the onus is on someone else. Yeah, you're really just pointing out to a social norm that's already been broken. Like complaining can sometimes be seen as you're asking for more than you should. But really, it's upholding a social contract that we've all in some way tacitly agreed to. And someone's breaking it. Like this bludger is not behaving as it should. And it shouldn't take the players to call a timeout. The person who's refereeing the game should ensure that the basic rules are adhered to. But who knows what lesson Madam Hooch is trying to teach them? What if Madam Hooch is like, they have to file a complaint. Otherwise, they're not going to learn to stand up for themselves. And it's not on me to blow the whistle for every little thing. I think that often complaining becomes the necessary communication tool when two entities have really different ideas of what the correct social norm is. So if you're in an emergency room, you go because you're in a tremendous amount of pain and you feel as though it's an emergency and you're waiting there for four or five, six hours and you start complaining to the nursing staff and to the doctors like, why aren't I getting medical attention? But the nurses and doctors know that there's a gunshot wound two doors down and so yours is not urgent. So their social awareness is about something totally different. And so that I feel like is where complaining comes in, where there's a lack of understanding as to what the correct thing to do is. I really like this idea of two social constructs not understanding one another. And that's what causes complaints. Because I think there are also different levels of complaints. Like you can have an informal complaining conversation and then you can like lodge a formal complaint. And we see that happen with the Weasley twins who say to Wood, we should stop the match. Like something is going on. Someone has tampered with his bludger. But, you know, they listen to Wood. They stick by that strategy and no one makes a formal complaint to Hooch. And so sometimes the informal relationships or the informal conversations are enough to bridge the divide between those two social constructs. And sometimes we need to have formal processes whereby we can build a bridge between those two understandings of the situation. And here, you know, the Gryffindor team has chosen not to do that. And it makes me think about so often we'll share a word of frustration here or there and people will pick up on the message, right? Of like, oh, I'm sorry that the coffee wasn't hot. I'll get you one right up. And there's no need to do anything. But sometimes something happens, whether it's in a restaurant or elsewhere, and you need to write a formal complaint with a letterhead and a lawyer present and everything else. And so, yeah, I'm just learning more about the nature of what complaining can look like. And I really do think that the Gryffindors make a mistake. I think it's clear that they make a mistake because Harry gets his arm broken. And I wonder why Harry doesn't lodge a formal complaint. He could say to Wood, and I think Wood would take him seriously, of like, no, I'm really afraid that this bludger is going to kill me. But instead, is this even a real rule? He says to Wood, if we complain, we'll have to forfeit. Is that true? Yeah, I mean— that seems like a huge price to pay. I mean, we hear so many stories of Quidditch lore of games that went on for like three years and, you know, or the whole team died or, you know, absurd things like that. So it does seem like the social construct on the Quidditch pitch is really very different from the norms outside of the Quidditch world, which I would say, listeners, stay away from Quidditch. <laughs> you know, choose life. <laughs> A lot of our listeners might play Quidditch. <laughs> it's funny when we start to see a complainer as a hero. Rosa Parks was a complainer, right? She was like, 
I don't like this and I have a different social norm than you have. And so I'm going to complain and I'm going to complain with my body. And now we obviously and rightfully see her as a hero. And whistleblowers be like, no, nicotine kills. We know. These are people who complain. So when when does a complainer become a hero? Sometimes you're a hero for sucking it up and so, like. Yeah. You know, Harry chooses not to complain and ends up winning, right? He catches the snitch somehow by some miracle. That doesn't mean he was right not to complain. You know, so even if it works out, it doesn't mean that it was okay. So I think that when you are complaining and you know that you are complaining not just for yourself, but that there are other people who are being impacted by the same rule, that is when we potentially eventually see you as a hero rather than just as a whiner. Saying like, I don't care that I'm going to be called a complainer. Hundreds of Quidditch players for the rest of Quidditch are going to be impacted by this. Whereas if you're just like nagging a nurse at an emergency room, even if you're right and you're in a lot of pain and you're really worried, that's when complaining just seems like complaining. And I think we're going to see someone embody that really beautifully in the text, starting in this book, but going throughout the books, which is Dobby. He's in a situation which is very, very difficult and he can't get himself out of, but he is going to try and lead the charge on behalf of many other house elves. And even in this moment where we find out that the bludger was controlled by Dobby, as a way to warn him. And there's this amazing moment where Dobby's like, not tried to kill you, Mr. Potter, just tried to grievously injure you. (laughs) Which is like, Dobby, how are you going to control the difference there? But anyway, you know, nonetheless, he's doing it out of service. He's trying to injure Harry in service of him not being killed. And so, yeah, if we can move from complaint to be about also serving others, I think then that's a good reason to do it. I mean, the relationship between Dobby and Harry is just hilarious to me because they have different social norms as to what they want from each other. Exactly. They are complaining to one another. But because there isn't like a third body to adjudicate who's right, they're just sitting there whining at each other. It's like, why'd you come to school? Why'd you try to prevent me from coming to school? Why won't you listen to me? Why are you trying to interfere? These are not two creatures who are like looking for compromise or looking to understand each other. They have totally different agendas. Do you know what? I'm actually going to reevaluate what I just said. They have the same agenda. They both want Harry to be healthy and happy. It's just that Dobby thinks that being at Hogwarts is going to kill Harry, and Harry thinks that being at the Dursleys is going to all but kill him. I love that. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Quip. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text listeners, I don't want to scare you, but three members of the Not Sorry Productions team have recently lost a tooth. Now, none of this was because of bad brushing. It was because of accidents that happened. But I am concerned about people who love Harry Potter and their teeth. Quip's electric toothbrush can help you in your routine of keeping your teeth healthy and sparkling clean. The mirror mount for your Quip toothbrush puts brushing front and center in your bathroom, so you'll remember to bookend the day using your new brush. The built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides and help you clean your whole mouth makes sure that you brush for the entire two minutes. The multi-use cover is amazing, it works as a stand, and also helps with sanitary reasons. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5. 
a friendly reminder as to when it's time to refresh and stay committed to your oral health. Please, this is a public service announcement from somebody who has all of her teeth and who loves a lot of people who've recently lost one tooth. Brush your teeth. Quip makes it easy and fun to brush your teeth, and that is why I love Quip and why it's perfect for getting back into a routine after the summer. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash Potter right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack for free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash Potter. My brother and sister-in-law have a fig tree, and it makes me sad because I live 3,000 miles away from the fig tree, and I love figs. I think they are like proof of a higher being. Now, I resent them less because due to Fleur's amazing Hanami scent, I get to smell like the fig tree. They make stunning, non-toxic perfumes, and they list all of their ingredients online. You get a good scent made with clean ingredients. And the sample process is just good old fun. Here at Harry Potter and Sacred Text, we actually got to put together our own floor sample set filled with our favorite scents. So if you're not sure where to start, make sure that you check that out. And definitely try to smell like my brother and sister-in-law's fig tree with the Hanami scent. Then when I meet you, I'll love you more because you'll smell like home. Go to Fleur.com slash Harry Potter today to check out our curated sample set and get 20% off of your first custom Fleur sample set. That's P-H-L-U-R dot com slash Harry Potter to get your first three Fleur fragrance samples at 20% off. Fleur.com slash Harry Potter. So I want to draw a comparison between Dobby, Harry, and Myrtle. Best of luck to you. You know, you've just illustrated how Harry and Dobby, who are both at the margins of their own social systems, aren't being really listened to in that engagement. But Myrtle is also totally being sidelined. You know, Hermione, Ron and Harry go to the girl's bathroom, Myrtle's bathroom, because they want to look through the list of ingredients that they need to make the polyjuice potion. And ironically, Myrtle is right there, and we know that she knows so much about the Chamber of Secrets, but they're not asking her. And yes, she's complaining, and yes, she's annoying, but sometimes we need to listen to those people who are kind of annoying and complainy because they actually have a real knowledge for us that will be helpful as we try to make progress in our lives. So in a sense, moaning Myrtle... Although she's not actually complaining about anything specific, she's just got this whiny attitude problem. But we should be intelligent enough to realize that if she's acting out in this way, like what's going on underneath, Myrtle? Let's sit down and talk about it. Would you like a cup of tea? I think that it gets complicated with kids because kids complain a lot. But I think that when kids complain, it's often because they're genuinely scared because they don't know how the world works. Years ago, I was babysitting a little girl who came to me and she was so scared and whining because her palm was sweaty and she didn't understand why her hands were wet when she hadn't done anything to wet them. And I think that what's going on underneath that is a fear about the world and how big and scary the world is. And there's something else going on and it just comes out as like whining and complaining and incessant annoyingness. But I do think that we should be listening when people complain because even if it's not actually about the thing that they are complaining about, something else is going on. I mean, that really raises the question for me. How do we increase our capacity to absorb kind of annoying complainingness? 
to find the treasures underneath. Can we acknowledge, though, that there are times when complaining is just annoying? And I think it's it's exactly this. It's when you're complaining for the sake of complaining. You're not trying to change anything. You're not expressing a deep fear. You're just whining for the sake of whining. I do it when I'm waiting for a table at a restaurant and I'm hungry. I just tell everybody I'm hungry again and again when, like, literally we're solving the problem. <laughs> That's annoying. I do that. Yeah, that is legitimately annoying. <laughs> It's time for our spiritual practice, and it is the last time that we'll be doing our sacred imagination practice that comes from St. Ignatius of Loyola. And Ignatius was famous for inviting people who were taking a retreat or who were with him for spiritual direction to engage in this method of prayer that he called contemplation and we call sacred imagination. And it's not a mystical prayer, but a prayer that uses all of the senses that we have to reflect on a story. Now, for Ignatius, it was always imagining yourself into a gospel story and to try and see, hear, and taste, and touch, and smell all the things that are happening in that scene to make it become real and alive. And through that and imagining yourself into that passage, you would understand new things about God. And so what we're doing is to imagine ourselves into a piece of this chapter of the rogue bludger. And I've taken this passage really from the very first page of the chapter. And we are in Lockhart's classroom. And Vanessa, I want you to try and imagine yourself as Gilderoy Lockhart. Ugh. Uh, you got to try. Take a deep breath. Oh, I look amazing. <laughs> Take it seriously. I am. I look amazing. Harry was hauled to the front of the class during their very next Defense Against the Dark Arts lesson, this time acting as a werewolf. If he hadn't had a very good reason for keeping Lockhart in a good mood, he would have refused to do it. Nice loud howl, Harry. Exactly. And then... If you'll believe it, I pounced like this, slammed him to the floor. Thus, with one hand, I managed to hold him down. With my other, I put my wand to his throat. I then screwed up my remaining strength and performed an immensely complex amorphous charm. He let out a piteous moan. Go on, Harry. Higher than that. Good. The fur vanished, the fangs shrank, and he turned back into a man. Simple, yet effective. And another villager will remember me forever as the hero who delivered them from the monthly terror of werewolf attacks. The bell rang and Lockhart got to his feet. What did you experience as Lockhart using all those senses? I experienced exactly what it's like to be a three-year-old. <laughs> that is the only thing that came to mind. I have a little cousin who's now eight, but it's one of my favorite conversations I've ever had is when we were talking about what he was going to be for Halloween. And he said he was going to be a superhero. And he was wearing a Superman t-shirt. So I was like, oh, I thought you were already a superhero. And he said, no, Nessa, I just pretend. I feel like he has more self-awareness than Lockhart. Lockhart is playing make-believe, where like he is working out his imagination and his wildest fantasies. He's able to use the most famous person he knows to, like, play act his fantasies this is the best day a four-year-old has ever had i feel like he's finally found a stage and like this is his captive audience he's just so desperate for attention 
I mean, one thing that we have to mention is that although he's a fabulous storyteller in one way, this is not his story, right? This is someone else's experience, which he has noted down, then obliviated their memory. And now he's acting as if the story is his. And in some ways, I'm wondering, is he practicing? Maybe this is like a working draft for his next book, right? Like he's trying to find out how he can tell the story best that will most entertain an audience. There's a nasty edge to this because he's really using these kids as a as a sort of practice ground. I, I this is toxic masculinity embodied. This is like you play with guns growing up and then you want to go off to war and then you go off to war and you're like, this is terrible. Like this is just somebody is making something up, imagining only the romantic sides of it, performing it for children, enjoying himself while doing it and attempting to indoctrinate other children into this mindset. But I think the moment that really becomes gross to me is when he makes Harry moan. And then he's like, no, hire Harry. So he's even like feminizing Harry in this weird way. There's like weird gender stuff happening here. One other thing is that at this point, the class is kind of on to Lockhart that he is not all that he seems, right? The pixies were a disaster. Never again do we have any other magical creatures in the classroom. You know, they can tell that the other professors don't quite trust Lockhart. So it, there's a sort of desperation that Lockhart is exhibiting. Like he's trying to entertain them. And it's like when someone is just trying too hard and you're like, listen, Lockhart, I would rather have Professor Bins and fall asleep than sit through this kind of craziness. Yeah. And also, this is just bad teaching. Again, I mean, at least Bins has lectures prepared. This is the magical equivalent of putting on a video. It's like, let me just act out scenes from a book that I want you all to buy. And then your homework is write a poem about it. (laughs) This week's voicemail is from Megan Cooper. Hi, Vanessa and Jasper. This is Megan calling from Palm Bay, Florida. I just finished listening to Chapter 5 about the Whomping Willow through the theme of responsibility. There was a part that you spoke about Dobby and how he took on responsibility for Harry when he really didn't have the means or ability to do so. He's limited by being bound to the Malfoys. He's forced to punish himself every time he runs out to try to help Harry. And while he has the best intentions, he really isn't able to help Harry the way he wanted to. You said that it's fair to hold people with more power and influence to higher standards and expect them to take on more responsibility. But I was thinking about the other side of that and how people who do not have the means or house elves who don't have the means to know when to say no and when not to take on responsibilities that are beyond their capabilities. I know for me, I spent a long time struggling with saying no to people. Um, I always wanted to take on everything. I thought it was a responsible thing to do to, you know, take action and take on all these responsibilities. But I realized that that tends to lead to just more disappointments and letting people down because I just stretched myself too thin. Uh, It reminded me of a quote by Maya Angelou that says, do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, do better. So now I try to recognize that with my limitations, whether it be my time, my finances, uh, knowing that I, while I I can still help people, I'm not saying never help anybody and just be a Scrooge, but to know when to say no and when to when you just can't 
take on certain responsibilities and leaving it to someone who ha- maybe has more power or more ability to take that on. So I was wondering what you were thinking about that. I love the podcast and I look forward to listening to more. Thanks. Melissa, thank you so much. Jasper, do you want to take this one? <laughs> Megan, we're just teasing. But my name is Casper. It's totally fine. Um, saying no is so hard. And this is something which I struggle with as well, because I think what I don't know how to do is express care and concern and commitment and also say no, because it feels like when I say no, I'm signaling all these things that are not true. But if we're not right, we can't help other people be right. So we've got to start with ourselves. I do think that's so, so important. I think that it's a really important question. And, you know, I think that The privileged among us, one of the biggest problems of our lives is going to be time management. There are too many good TV shows to watch, let alone too many people that you want to spend time with and too much good work you want to do in the world. And that is real. That is is dealing with the fact that we have finite time on this earth. So I do think saying no is important. And often I think that you can be teaching a lesson in in saying no, depending on how you say no. You're giving other people permission to also self-care by saying no. A couple of female students of mine wanted my help last year when we were working on something for the podcast, and it was not an emergency that they wanted me for. And so I told them no. And then I wrote them a follow-up email saying no. And if something's not an emergency, as young women, you cannot skip work in order to like fulfill a mother role to people who are not your children. And I got emails back from all four of them being like, thank you. There have been times where I've missed class to caretake for someone who wasn't in an emergent situation. And I actually think that sometimes by saying no, you're giving someone the opportunity to teach themselves that they they are strong enough to do it without help. One strategy I'm trying to use at the moment is saying to people, I'm trying to be better at saying no, so blah, 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 because we, we're all struggling with this. And if one person can say it, you know, if someone says it to me, I'm so understanding. And if it's really something important, then I'll stress it again. And often then people will say yes, if it's really important. But I, I will use that moment to sense check. Actually, this can wait till next week. That's fine. Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone Who are you going to bless this week? I would like to bless Madame Pomfrey for being the most competent woman alive. She sees that Lockhart has made her job harder, and she's just like, I guess I'm going to fix it. And she just goes around fixing it and bosses everybody around and is like, he needs rest. And she's just so good at her job. And I love people who are good at their jobs. I love, love when someone is good at their job. She's just so cool. And so I'm going to offer a blessing for cool people who are good at their jobs. Boom. Who are you blessing this week, Casper? So at the end of the chapter, we find out that someone else has been petrified and Colin Creevy is carried in and he's been holding up his camera and the whole camera's exploded and everything else. And the reason why he's been petrified is because he was bringing grapes to Harry. And, you know, we've made fun of Colin somewhat throughout this book. I love him. Because he's, you know, he's kind of a jokey character. But here he is breaking out at night and he's obviously gone to the kitchens to get some grapes. And he wants to bring them to Harry because he knows Harry is hurt. And so my heart just melts for little Colin, especially because we know of the way that he looks up to Harry. So anyone who's keeping an eye out to the people that they admire, the people they care about, even if they don't know them very well, this blessing is for you because we could all be a bit more like Colin 
maybe without the paparazzi intentions. Thank you, Casper. Thank you, Melissa. (laughs) You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Next week, we will be doing the sacred practice of Havruta while we read Chapter 11, The Dueling Club, through the theme of excellence. Please go to our website in order to learn more about our live show and our presentation at NerdCon. Also, please subscribe and review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook, and email us your voicemails at harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Ariana Nedelman, me, Casper Kyle, and Vanessa Zoltan. Our social media coordinator is Jen Stark. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll. And Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is part of the Panoply Network. You'll find ours and other great shows at panoply.fm. Thanks to Megan Cooper for this week's voicemail, Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, and Stephanie Purcell. We'll see you next week. Ugh, that reminds me of these Sunday walks that my parents made us go on for years. And we'd be halfway through the walk and suddenly I'd decide, I don't want to walk any further. <laughs> and I would just like, I would just like sit down and then I would walk really slowly. Like, you know, when you put your, your heel in front of your toe and you just, you like saunter really slowly. And at this point, it's like, well, you're not going to get home any faster. Like, you still have to walk it. You're in the middle of a forest. No one's going to come and get you. And so my parents would just keep walking. And then at some point I'd be like, Oh, fine. And then I would, like, run to catch up, being really angry. I I never liked the outside. <laughs> yeah. <Get that. laughs> right. Like, like that. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> so many of those stories. Um, Solved. Complaining, uh, we figured you out. <laughs> Hi, it's Joseph Fink. My friend Jeffrey and I created Welcome to Night Vale back in 2012. Normally, we're the ones turning our ideas into writing. But for our brand new show, Start With This, it's you who will do the creating. On each episode, we'll talk about a topic of the creative process. Then we will give you two short assignments, something to consume and something to create. You can share your work on our membership forum to see what other people are up to. We want you to start creating one simple assignment at a time, because the best way to start writing is to start writing. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.